0: All right, Salt City. Uh, I'm Jordan. I'm the college pastor here. Uh, pumped you're here. Hope you had an awesome fourth. I uh, had the chance to grill three different forms of beef in two days, so I did have an awesome fourth. Um, yep, yeah, felt felt good, felt good. But I was thinking about just what I'm thankful for in life, and you guys are towards the top of that list. Um, yeah, I'm just thankful for you. Thanks, for being here. Thanks for being a part of this church. Love you guys. Um, let's dig in here. So we're going to keep going in First Peter. And these last two weeks have turned into like a little mini-series on me that I, I didn't anticipate. Uh, but what I've learned as I've started studying these texts is that this section of First Peter is all about holiness. And so last week was about sort of this urgent need for holiness. And this is what we were talking about, that if you are in Christ, The pursuit of holiness, of being set apart the way that God is set apart, is one of the primary purposes of your life, the urgent need for holiness. And so this morning, we're going to keep talking about that, but I want to talk specifically about how do we become holy? Or another way to put it is how do people change? The the Christian term for change is called sanctification, which a simple way to define it is just saying, how do you become a person who looks more and more like Jesus over time? And, and that question of how do people change has been one of like, the primary questions of my life. And, and so I'm excited for this morning. There's some just like, pretty simple truths that a lot of you have heard before. But they're truths that have fundamentally changed the way that I walk through life with Christ. And so my prayer is like that same type of thing is going to happen for you, that simple truth would just land for a couple of you and that would change your perspective on what it means to follow Jesus. And so, like I said, I've been asking this question of how do people change for a long time. I was asking it before I was a Christian. And, and I think that all of us are asking this question, whether we fully realize it or not. There's the, the version of you that you want to be. The the vision of yourself that you want to become, but there's a gap between that person and who you actually are, and we're all trying to figure out how to bridge that gap. And I was trying to figure that out early on. So I was into, like, self-help motivational books. I was, like, trying to figure out disciplines that I could get into. I got into, like, a weird motivational speaker phase where I went to this camp that this motivational speaker was at and he had us write our problems on like a piece of wood and then break the wood with our our palm, which felt great. But I have no idea how that was supposed to help me in my life. And that's what a lot of that stuff is, that self-help stuff, is it's this nice idea, but there's no power behind it. There's, There's nothing that can actually change you. But then I met Jesus and my life actually began to change. The, the motivation to change that had always been there, there was actually something powerful to back that up. Now, I actually could start to be a different person. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. So flip open to 1 Peter if you haven't yet. Uh, we're going to be in the, the back half of chapter 1 and then getting into chapter 2. But I want to zoom in on this one verse, verse uh, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Here it is. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Okay, there's a ton of stuff packed in there. Okay, so what we just heard is <clears throat> what actually can change you, what type of growth that comes in, and then what the source or power behind that growth is. So let me, let me unpack this a little bit. Okay, so the first and only way to truly grow as a Christian and just in life is that you must be born again. So that's a term that a lot of you have heard before, but it's an analogy for what's the source of the Christian life, is that There's this gospel message of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he loves you and that he wants relationship with you, and you likely have to hear that truth over and over and over again until one day it just sort of lands in your soul and it fundamentally changes who you are. And the reason why the analogy is birth is because it's like you're starting entirely over, that you go from being a person who was dead in your sins, who now is alive, You were one person and now you are fundamentally and essentially a different person. You are now now a spiritual being with imperishable life. And that is the heart of what actual Christian change looks like because we're not talking about tweaks, we're not talking about self-improvement, we're talking about fundamentally changing the essence of who you are as a person. And that's not something that you can create in and of yourself. Which is odd, right? Because every other form of change, self-improvement, self-help, New Year's resolutions, whatever, assumes that you are able to change yourself, that you have the power in and of yourself to change. But actually what the Bible tells us is that you don't. And and that's what was going on in my life is I had this desire to be different, but I couldn't because I was trying to be something that I wasn't. I was trying to be a person with spiritual life, a good human being, but what I actually was was dead in my sins. What I actually was was corrupted to my core and I had no ability to change that in and of myself. I was dependent on God to show up and do that to me. That's why it's the analogy of the new birth. Did you play like did you just decide one day, hey, I'm going to be born. No someone else decided that for you. And in, in, in a similar way, sorry, that got a little weird. I didn't mean it. But uh, in a similar way, you have no choice in the matter of whether you can be born. It happens to you when you encounter God. And you need that new spiritual life to flood over you in order to experience actual change. But it's not just change. It's a different type of change. So we see that in the analogy that it's using. It says that you've been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable seed. Okay, so think about what it's like to plant a seed. Think about planting a seed that eventually will turn into like an oak tree. When you plant that acorn, it goes into the ground and it's a very simple thing, but there's organic life in it. And if you were to stand there and watch it and try and watch it grow, you wouldn't see much happening. But if you planted it in the ground and you came back 20 20 years later, what you would find is this incredible tree that looks fundamentally different from what you planted in the ground. That's what organic growth looks like, is that it's growth not just in sort of physically getting larger, but that tree is, is dynamically changing, that, like, the essence of what it is is growing and developing. And the, the final product is technically the same thing, but it's almost different in entirely every other way. And so what the Christian growth is is it's organic growth where you're changing in, in complexity, in beauty, in the essence of who you are. You're changing. But a lot of us are shooting for mechanical growth. So when you hear mechanical growth, think of it like this. It's just stacking bricks on top of each other. It's building a brick wall. And so this is the type of change that a lot of you have been trying to produce in your life that maybe you even were taught in Christianity growing up, is that those bricks are your sort of moral behaviors, They're the the good things that you can do in life, and the way that you change is that you just stack brick on top of brick on top of brick until you have this brick wall. But the problem is, is that is not the holistic type of growth that God wants for you in your life. And you can do that. You can stack your morality on top of each other. If you feel guilty about something, you can throw in some good works and hope that you can kind of get over that guilt. And you can do that, and you can become like a tower of morality. You can become like a good example in your community. You can become a good parent, but you can't be a Christian. Christianity is not just morality. It includes that, but it's something far different and far better than that. It's spiritual life inside of you transforming you from the inside out. So here's the question is... If that power is available to us, why do we tend to not take advantage of it? Well, here's the answer. is because to have access to the type of changing power that God can have in your life, you have to be willing to become a baby. That born-again analogy means that when you become a Christian, you don't get to carry in all of your moral accolades. You have to start over. And you have to be willing to be a baby that is entirely dependent on Christ for your growth, that doesn't bring anything to the table except your own dependence on him because that's the way that he designed it. But a lot of us don't want to do that. We're too stuck in our mechanical growth. We're too interested in the things that we can bring to the table to demonstrate our own goodness, to be willing to get to that point. But even if you are that person, even if you are a genuine Christian, you've been born again, you've trusted in Jesus and in him alone, sometimes what we do is we revert back to the old way that we were trying to grow. We revert back to mechanical work, to our own efforts, to our own goodness, but we got to remember that true growth is organic. So let's stick with this like analogy of like seeds and growth and stuff like that. Here is the power for change. Looking back again at verse 23, through the living and abiding word of God, in other words, the message of the gospel. So the message of the gospel is like weed and feed for your soul. Okay, so what's weed and feed? It's the stuff that you spray on your grass that kills the weeds and then it feeds your grass at the same time. That's what the gospel does in your soul is when you get the reality of everything that Jesus has done for you it begins to kill the weeds of sin down to the root in your soul and it feeds your heart for Christ but here's what you can't do is you can't spray weed and feed on a lawn and come back 15 years later and be surprised that there's weeds there why because you got to keep spraying it it works but it works for a certain amount of time. It starts to wear off over time. And so this is your job as a Christian is to keep spraying the gospel on your soul over and over and over again. And when you see the weeds of sin start to pop up in your life, you keep hitting it with the gospel because it's the only thing powerful enough to kill that sin in your heart. So I want to talk about that. I want to Open up through First Peter what it looks like to fight sin through a gospel lens, to keep spraying that gospel weed and feed on your soul. So this is how we do it: is you fight sin with desire and you fight sin with identity. So let's take that first one. You fight sin with desire. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. So put away all malice, which just means ill will towards someone and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Okay, so it's saying to put off sin in your life, but it's saying to put off a specific group of sins. So the way I would summarize these sins is they're sins against your brother or sister in Christ. They're sins that that hurt other people. Or the positive way to put this is, hey, be the type of person who loves your brother or sister in Christ. Put on love. And in fact, you could summarize sanctification or Christian change in that kind of one sentence is put on love for people. It's not just about you being sort of holy. It's not just about you feeling good about your spirituality. It's about you actively loving other people. So let me just look at this for a second. One of them is don't slander. So that is, yes, like lying about someone or damaging their reputation, but I think it includes all of this sort of talking bad about people. So it includes gossip. So one of the things that you'll hear people say is, oh, I just need to vent. I just need to get that off of my chest. Okay, here's the problem with that, is that venting is just a fancy way of gossiping, which Jesus has called you away from. You don't need to vent, you need to repent of the bitterness in your heart and love that person even if they hurt you the way that Christ has loved you. In particular, if you're married, make a decision to only speak well about your spouse to other people. Now, what I'm not saying is if you're in an incredibly destructive relationship or an abusive relationship that you just stay there and don't do anything about it, there are absolutely exceptions but the norm is that you make a decision out of love to only speak well of that person, to lift them up instead of tearing them down. Is that true of you? When you are with other people and not with your spouse, how do you speak about them? Hypocrisy, let's take that one. It's not being two different people. It's not having the you that you present to the world, but then the the internal you being different. It's about being one person. And this is what this is saying about hypocrisy is it's not just pride, but it's actually damaging to your relationships because your relationships then are founded on something that isn't true. They're founded on a lie. And what you're doing when you're not allowing someone in on your struggles in connection group or when you come to church and you kind of put on that happy face, when you don't let people actually see in your life, is you're robbing them of the chance to know you. Which in the Christian life, getting to know you is actually a blessing, not a burden. And so don't rob them of that chance. Don't be two-faced. But here's my question. How do you actually do that? Okay, that's, that's nice. But I actually don't think staring at this verse and saying, don't be a hypocrite, don't be a hypocrite, don't gossip, is actually that helpful. You need something more than that. So, what does it look like to actually become this type of person? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Okay, so that pure spiritual milk almost certainly is referring to the Word of God, more specifically, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But I think you can actually expand that out to God himself. And here's the deal. The the primary imperative of this section is not verse 1, where it says to put off these things, but it's actually verse 2, where it says to long. To long for the pure spiritual milk. That that word longing means to to crave, to, to eagerly desire. So this is The imperative from this text is you should be the person who eagerly desires or craves after God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so why is that the command? How is craving after God connected to slander, to hypocrisy, to some of these sins listed? Well, let me ask you this. When you sin, why did you sin? If you engage in one of these behaviors or a different one, what made you do it? Is it because you didn't have enough information? We've talked about this before. The vast majority of you in this room are not surprised by your sin in the sense that you go, oh, I didn't know that that was wrong. Is someone secretly making you sin somewhere? No. Why did you sin? Because you wanted to. Because in that moment, it felt like the best possible life that you could live. And there's a lot of well-meaning people in the world that are going to say that humans are basically good. And so you should trust the desires in your heart or you should trust the desires in other people. But the problem with that is the Bible says the exact opposite thing. It says that humans aren't basically good, but that we're actually fundamentally corrupted, that sin has invaded the goodness that God put in us. And so this is what's true is when you're trying to fight sin, What's actually true is that you are malicious, or you are deceitful, or you are a hypocrite. That's what's natural for you. It's what's natural for me. Sin is your native language. It's what you want. And so this is what Christians are, is we're people saying, hey, I'm going to eat healthy today as we're reaching for a donut. Christians are people that are saying, hey, I'm going to follow Jesus today today as we're reaching for sin. Because there's a part of us that knows we should follow Christ and that in a sense wants to follow Christ, but there's this other desire in us that just really wants sin. And so this is what needs to happen, is we need to become the sort of people who don't want sin anymore. Not the people that are just kind of slapping our hands when we reach for the donut, but that just don't want it anymore anymore which means that we have to be convinced that there's something out there that's better than sin. The only way to stop craving sin is to become the type of person who craves after God. Let me put it a little bit more intellectual way than reaching for donuts. Okay, this is a, a quote from Thomas Chalmers. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. I love that. The expulsive power of a new one. That's saying the only way to get rid of something that you desire that's not good is by having a new desire that's better that pushes out the old one. And that new desire for God in you needs to become strong enough that it pushes out that old desire for sin. So, what makes us the type of people who crave God? Verse three. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Sanctification happens when you begin to taste the goodness of God. And if you're like, give me a definition of what that means. No, 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 that's not the point. (laughs) This isn't saying, hey, just know what you should do. You should know that, but you should become the type of person that knows how to experience the goodness of God in such a way that it impacts you and that it changes you and that you want more. Okay, So this is what I'm saying is the difference between the type of Christianity that a lot of us have, that I've had through a lot of my life, that that is sort of just trying to get the right information about God, but that's about all there is to it. The difference between that and the type of Christianity that the Bible describes is like the difference between looking at a painting of Mount Everest and actually going and standing on its peak. I'm saying that if you're willing to put in the work to actually get to know who God is, to actually climb up that mountain, There is beauty there, kind of a dangerous wild beauty, but there's beauty there. There's significance there. There's weightiness there, unlike what you've experienced before. And when you look at a painting of Everest, you're kind of like, oh, that's nice. But you leave unchanged. But if you stand on its peak, you'll never forget that moment in your life. And I'm saying you can kind of know about God. You can kind of come to churchy stuff and see him. But if you don't actually experience him, you won't change. But there's a depth to knowing him. Now, listen, here's what I'm not saying. Let me give you a couple things. What I'm not saying is that every time you spend time with God, it just like blows your mind. Like this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. No, that's not true. That often is actually a sign of immaturity rather than maturity if that's what you need to spend quality time with God. I'm not saying that there's sort of next level Christianity, <laughs> that there's sort of regular Christians over here and then there's the real Christians over here. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is more to God and there's more to knowing him and experiencing him than the majority of us in this room know. And I can't give you like a five-step plan for that, partially because there is no five-step plan and partially because I don't even totally know what it is yet. I'm trying to figure it out. But part of the mystery of that is actually part of the beauty of it, that I'm not trying to, I can't tell you exactly how to do it, but I'm trying to get you to long for it. I'm trying to get you to to see that there might be more to walking with Jesus than what you've experienced before, that maybe all you've known is just sort of seeing him and knowing him, but have you tasted him? Have you experienced his goodness? Let me give you just a couple thoughts on, on some basic like baby steps that you could take towards that. One of them is when you go to the Word of God, and I guess I'm assuming that you're going to the Bible. Maybe I shouldn't. Actually, I think it's true that the majority of evangelicals don't actually spend consistent time in the Word. Read that book. Look, the the answers to the questions that you have in life, the, the longings of your soul, the opportunity to know God himself is in the Bible. Wouldn't that be worth changing the rhythms of your life to consistently get in that book? Okay, so, so get in the Bible, step one. But then once you're there, why are you going there? Don't treat it like an owner's manual for a car. Where when there's something wrong, that's the only time that you flip it open and you flip it open to a specific page to try and find your solution and then go fix that problem. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible's not a rule book. It's not there to just give you a list of rules to kind of go fulfill in your life. The Bible is an opportunity for you to have an encounter with God himself. Like, this is what happens when you spend time with God. I know this is simple, but this is crazy if you'll think about it. When you open up the Bible, God talks to you. And then when you pray, you talk back to him. Like, you have a conversation with him. Go there to meet with him. Another thing, stop focusing so much on all the things that you're doing wrong in your life and that you want to try and pull out of your life. Yes, that's a good thing to try and stop those things, but what if you figured out the stuff that just fills up your soul, that just makes you experience joy in life and in who you are in Christ? And what if you just went and did those things? Go experience God in whatever that looks like. This morning, I wake up. The sermon is rolling through my head. There's stuff that's kind of like I need to tweak and that is unchanged, and I'm, I'm freaking out about it a little bit, but my deck is outside, and it was a gorgeous morning. What I needed to do is just go sit in a chair and look at the trees and listen to the birds. I needed to just experience God instead of constantly trying to go do stuff for him. Just go do what you enjoy and find God there. Okay, so you fight with desire, but you also fight with identity. You remember who you are. What's one of the first questions that you ask someone when you meet them? Hey, my name's Jordan. What do you do? What do you do for a living? Which is a fine question, right? But what if you walked up to someone and said, hey, who are you? Be a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit weird, Right? Partially because it's just a socially awkward question, but partially because people don't really know. And I think part of that is because we've so defined our identity based off of what we do. Okay, I know some people who have spent their entire lives anticipating and looking forward to retirement, and then they get a week into it and they're freaking out and want to work again. Why? Because it's hard to separate who you are from what you do. And when what you do is taken away, you forget who you are and you freak out a little bit. We tend to inform who we are by what we do, but it's actually the opposite. Who you are informs what you do. Your doing flows out of your being, who you are as a person. So, okay, how do you figure out who you are? What I just said is you can't create it. You can't create an identity for yourself through what you do. You can't really discover it, right? That's what teenagers or people in midlife crisis are trying to do. They're trying to find out who they are. You can't go discover it. You've got to be told who you are. And God is the only one who can speak your new identity powerfully into your life. And so this is what I want to do, is I just want to tell you who you are. Real simple. Real simple. I want to tell you who God says you are. And this is a a big claim, but I think it's true. I would contend that all of the angst that you feel in life, all of the fears, all of the, the frustrations, all of the discontentment, all of the sins, that all of that stuff could be cured if you actually knew how to just believe who you are. That there is something that's true about your identity in Christ that washes over all of that other stuff and can make you content and satisfied regardless of what's going on in your life. The Christian life is actually really, really simple. It's just about believing. It's about believing what God has said about you, not what the world says about you or what you say about you. But just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. That's actually super hard. And so we've got to keep reminding ourselves who we are. So this is, this is what I want to do for each of these things. I want to tell you real quick who you are according to Christ, why that's significant, and what your life would actually look like if you believed that truth. Okay, so the first one. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. okay so you yourselves are like living stones. you guys encouraged? Goody, you get to be a brick. Like what is, what is what is what is the point of this? Okay it's saying that you are the new temple. And maybe for some of you, that resonates a little bit in your soul. For a lot of you, you're still like, dude, you still lost me. Like, that's not much better than the brick thing. Okay, that's because we don't have a context for the significance of the temple. But you actually could say that the primary story of the Bible is about temple. Here's what a temple was. It's where heaven meets earth. It's where the presence of God is with his people, And the the book of the Bible opens up in Genesis in a garden temple where God himself is living with his people and it closes in Revelation in a garden city that also happens to be a temple. Like this nerdy thing that I was thinking about lately is the new Jerusalem, it gives its dimensions in the book of Revelation and it's a perfect cube. You know why? Because the holy of holies, the centerpiece of the temple, the centerpiece of the presence of God was a perfect cube. So what it's saying is, is the new Jerusalem or our hope in heaven heaven is the holy of holies itself, the the place where the very presence of God lives and we get to live there forever. You can trace the temple all throughout the Bible that, that we're kicked out of the temple, we're kicked out of the presence of God because we're too corrupt, we're too sinful to be there. And so the story is about how will people get back into the presence of God. And you've got Solomon who who builds this magnificent temple and he dedicates it and the presence of God comes down on it. But then the, the Israelite people get exiled. They get kicked out of their land. And that's such a big deal because they're exiled not just from their land but from the presence of God. And they come back and they rebuild the temple and, and they're expecting big things, but it's just not what it used to be. And then that continues until the time of Christ when God himself, the very presence of God, walks into the temple and nobody knows that he's there. They don't even recognize the presence of God anymore. But then God offers himself up as a sacrifice in that temple, Jesus offers himself up on the cross in payment for our sins, and then he looks at you and he says, now you are the new temple. You are the place where heaven meets earth. You are the dwelling place of God. So here's the implications of that, is that God is with you always everywhere. And you are the most holy place on the planet. You are set aside for the presence of God. How would you live if you actually believe that? Well, there's a lot of things. One of them is you would live like you're holy. You would treat your body and your life with unbelievable respect because you would see that it's the place where God lives. You would slow down and recognize the presence of God and realize that he's with you all the time. That maybe you would wake up and instead of the first thing being jumping on your phone, looking through emails, looking through social media, maybe you would wake up and you would say, God is here. He's with me. I want to spend time with him. All right, we got to keep going. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. So who are you? You are a chosen race. This is what this means is that you are a part of a new people. And I think as Americans we miss the significance of this because we're so individualistic. But you have been brought into this new amazing family. And before, different, different races or different groups of people were, were separated and kind of identified by sort of the differences between them. That's how they identified themselves. But now in Christ, we're identified by our similarities. In Christ, we our similarities in him overwhelm our differences, and now we have this new spiritual family. So if you come from a messed up family if you've experienced conflict and pain and separation or abuse, you have a new family in Christ and you belong here. You're a part of it. And it's not a perfect family yet, but it is an even better family than any of us have experienced because it's centered on who Christ is. Here's how you would live if you believe that, is we would live deeply interconnected lives depending on and trusting each other and walking through life together in a unified way unlike anything else the world has ever seen. That as a Christian, we should have deeply meaningful and significant relationships in ways that are unique and different from what you had before. Okay, next one, who are you? You're a royal priesthood. Okay, first, you're royal. You're inherently valuable. You're worthy of respect. You're a priesthood. What were the priests' job? Their their job was to conduct worship. Right? So they didn't have really much of an other occupation. That was their goal in their job is to, to be mediators between God and man is that people would bring their sacrifice to the priest and the priest would bring that before God and he was kind of the, the intermediary between God and man and this is saying that you now are a priest so your job in life is worship. You are the centerpiece and the focal point of worship. And you weirdly, in some senses, are the intermediaries between God and man. Here's what I mean by that, is you know God, and you now get to bring him out to a world that doesn't know him. You get to be the picture of his love and his grace and his kindness to a world that doesn't understand it. So how would you live? You would live lives deeply saturated with meaning because you would understand that every piece of your life is worship. That even the normal stuff in life, eating a meal, driving to work, that there's significance there because God is there and you are the centerpiece of worship. So there would be meaning and significance in your life. Who are you? You are a people for God's own possession. You are God's and he is yours. Here's the implication is that you are owned by God so nothing else can own you. The habits, The sins, the addictions don't have to own you anymore because you now are Christ's and he is yours so you would live like you're free. You would turn away from those old destructive passions and you would live for something new and better. Okay, why are all of those things true of us? Because they were first true of Jesus. So the temple Heaven meeting earth. Okay, Jesus went from heaven to earth. He wasn't just a representative of God. He was God himself on earth. A chosen race. Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world to save our race, the human race. A holy nation. He's not just trying to be holy. He's the definition of holy. It's natural for us to sin. It was natural for him to obey a possession of God, Jesus was God's most treasured possession. Okay, so Jesus was all of those things, and now if you are in Christ, you are all of those things too because you have what Jesus had. So who are you? What is your identity? You are Christ. That is this kind of mystical crazy union described in the New Testament is when you know Jesus his identity becomes your identity you are him and the more you remember that you are in Christ that you are unified with him the more you'll actually live like him and you can actually change let me pray got to love that truth so much that You came to get us. And and not only did you come to get us a couple thousand years ago, but you stayed with us by your spirit and now we get to know you in like real ways. And so would you just keep reminding us of who we are, our identities in you, and would we live like people who have been set free from the old ways of life? Would we live holy lives dependent on you because you've made a way for us? God, and so... All the sins in the room, we bring them before you and we acknowledge them and we say, forgive us, God, forgive us for our sins as a people, but thanks that you have made us holy, that you didn't just leave us there, but you made us a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so we take hope in that identity together this morning. And so help us to figure out what it means to to be people who desire you more than anything else, that desire you more than sin, and that have confidence in the new identity that you've given us even when we do struggle, even when we do fall. And we're excited to worship you together now as a family, Jesus. Amen.